what's going on podcasting world welcome back to another episode of the core console rx podcast cole i believe this is episode 151 is it we are yeah, well I've, on our way to 200 i've missed a couple so it's good to you, be back you did i feel like you haven't been here in 17 months i know i've been on a hiatus i come back and mike's bought all sorts of extra electronics and he's reorganized the whole room i don't even know what to do oh we got so many plans extra shells podcast studios cameras all sorts of stuff so many wires i don't know what any of it does <laughs> been watching a lot of youtube we'll figure it out right so where you been cole i've we had a baby. Well, yeah. hey, sometimes you just got to do that. Surprise. I don't even think I had mentioned that my wife was pregnant on any so. of the previous episodes. Cole is now a father. Yeah. Little boy. How does that feel? Little Nathan. Good. Little Tiring. Na- Nathan. It's not like the solid name. Yeah. Yeah. Tiring, but good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it more tiring than school and all that good stuff? Um, I put it number three on most difficult things I've done. Okay, well, yeah. that's, that's encouraging. Yeah. So I it's like not that. that. It's really not. It's not like everybody says. They all make it sound like it's the worst thing ever. It's doable. Not people do it all the time. So easy. You should have had three of them uh, at the same time. Yeah. It would have been very efficient. So, so easy. <laughs> no, that's cool, man. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. That's really awesome. Um, so today we are going to. We actually got an email um, from a listener saying that uh, they were kind of studying for uh, one of the board certifications and um, asked us if we could kind of cover acute coronary syndrome, uh, which we have touched on a little bit in the past. Long but, time uh, ago. Yeah, since we're not you know, super proficient when it comes to, uh, you know, this type of topic and, you know, more of an acute care cardiology type thing like this. We, we don't spend a lot of time going through this just cause we try to stay in our lane, but we're going to go do our best tackle this. And in worst case scenario, we'll get, uh, our, our good buddy, uh, Brian Gilbert to tell us what we said wrong and yeah. put out a rebuttal later. And we'll just do what we always do when we don't have firsthand experience. We just repeat what other <clears throat> smart people say. There you go. Just pair, just pair it what people say. Pair what people say. Pretend like we know what we're talking about. Yep. Say it with confidence. People believe you. Just kidding. Don't do that. All right. So acute coronary syndrome. So, you know, when we talk about that term in particular, it's, it's kind of like this umbrella term, if you will. Um, so under that, we have our ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. We have a non ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. And then we have our unstable angina. And usually our, our non STEMI and, and unstable angina can get um, kind of lumped together as a uh, non-ST uh, segment elevation myocardial infarction. You'll see that kind of abbreviated. Um, but uh, yeah, those three things kind of make up that umbrella term of acute coronary syndrome. Uh, but this is definitely going to be a more emergency situation. Um, you know, classic symptoms are going to be this abrupt onset of substernal chest pain, um, usually lasts for 10 minutes or longer. Um, patients will often describe it as sort of like a heaviness or tightness. Um, some say it's like a squeezing sensation, um, but the pain itself can radiate from like the chest area and actually radiate to the shoulders, arms, um, as well as even like the abdomen and in some cases the jaw. Um, some patients can actually have like nausea and vomiting associated with it. Um, usually they'll have like a severe dyspnea. Um, they will sometimes have syncope or palpitations. Um, but something that, uh, you know, a lot of these patients have kind of, I shouldn't say a lot, but you know, if they've, if they've had some sort of like stable ischemic heart disease up until now, you know, maybe they were on uh, nitroglycerin. And so angina itself may not be 
super alarming for them. However, if it's kind of persistent, the nitroglycerin sublingual tablets aren't helping, um, it's time to head to the ED and figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah. And for some people, it can be a complete surprise, which the the STEMI and the the NSTEMI is what um, people will generally refer to as a heart attack. Uh, But it happens because there's a reduction in coronary blood flow which leads to myocardial ischemia. So it can be, frequently, it is from a atherosclerotic plaque rupturing. So if they didn't have, uh, you know, previous symptoms of stable angina or something like that, then plaque ruptures, they get decreased blood flow, and it can be, you know, an intense, quick onset and can often be very painful when we go through the drugs that you use. They used to give a morphine um, very often because of how painful it was, but not uh, quite recommended like it used to be. Uh, but as far as diagnosing, so delineating between those three things that Mike said, STEMI and STEMI and unstable angina, the first thing you want to do right when they present is to get a 12-lead EKG on them, um, ideally within the first 10 minutes of medical contact to evaluate uh, what's going on with their um, cardiac conduction. You also want to order cardiac enzymes. Uh, specifically, we're looking for uh, troponins, which you've probably heard that term before related to ACS, and that's um, a specific marker uh, that gets dumped into the bloodstream when myocardial cells die, and it's very specific. They used to get something called um, creatinine kinase myocardial isoenzyme, CKMB, um, but that's not recommended anymore. Troponins are much more um, specific, but you may still see that drawn. Um, so you want to measure the troponins initially at the presentation if you suspect ACS, um, and then measure again three to six hours after the onset of symptoms. If you can't get a good history and it's you're kind of unclear as to when the symptoms actually started, consider their presentation to the ED as their time of onset. Um, and you could measure again after six hours if the patient has had normal serial troponins initially and then maybe EKG changes or they have high-risk clinical features, you might want to get another one. Um, and then you'll also want to continuously monitor the, the ST segment as well. So we have some uh, different scoring systems that can kind of help assess the risk of um, having adverse cardiac events um, in patients that are experiencing acute coronary syndrome. Um, so we have things like the heart score. Um, we have the TIMI risk score that's um, made for a STEMI. We also have a TIMI risk score that's made for a non-STEMI unstable angina. Um, we have the GRACE uh, risk score. Um, and you can usually find like the Timmy risk score, for example, you can find it like the example of that at MedCalc, um, you can go to www.timmy.org to see the, uh, some of those risk scores as well. Um, the grace risk score can be found. You can do a simple Google search and find these. So they're pretty easy to get access to, and you can kind of use those to assess, um, the sort of the patient's likelihood of having a, a negative outcome. And it's like any other kind of standard risk factor calculator that you might see on MedCalc taking into effect their or taking into account their age, um, if they've used aspirin in the last seven days, whether they have a history of angina episodes, stuff like that. So um, easy stuff you can plug in and kind of uh, assess their risk with. Um, as far as what to do in the first 24 hours, so you've probably heard the acronym MONA-B before, which would stand for morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, aspirin, dash beta blocker depending on the timing um so not all of those are recommended for everybody each time now i guess you'd probably say nah b right yeah basically right so the the morphine they want to limit that use um 
and then the oxygen you can still use oxygen but reserve it for certain patients so we'll kind of go through those um so mona b just to give you an idea of all the drugs that they would consider even though not all of them are standard of care like no matter what um but aspirin would be kind of one that you know you're going to want to have non-enterocoded aspirin between 162 to 325 milligrams um it should be chewed so if you have baby aspirin that's two uh, and then if you have the regular strength aspirin it's just the 325 the nitroglycerin, um, nitroglycerin is going to cause that vasodilation and give hopefully relief of some of the chest pain. Um, it doesn't necessarily reduce mortality. It's it's more for the um, the chest pain and the the relief of that. You don't want to use it if the um, systolic blood pressure is less than ninety or you've had more than a thirty millimeters of mercury drop from baseline. So if you already had high blood pressure more than thirty, you probably want to avoid it because it might drop them too low. And then, of course, if they've used, um, like Viagra, a PDE5 inhibitor, um, any nitroglycerin-based products going to be contraindicated because of the risk for severe hypotension. Um, but you're also going to want to be considering other antiplatelets and anticoagulants going into um, this process with determining whether they're going to need intervention or whether you're just going to use medications. Um, like we said, beta blockers, statins, possibly an ACE inhibitor, depending on what ends up happening with their heart. Um, but yeah, those are kind of what is in your, your toolbox going forward and then we have oxygen and morphine oxygen don't give everybody oxygen like they used to um, reserved for patients with an o2 sat less than 90 percent is when you'd want to consider oxygen the reason being um, it could increase coronary vascular resistance and reduce coronary blood flow so possibly worsen outcomes by giving them oxygen um, there was a Cochrane review that was done that showed no benefit with routine use to all patients being treated for an MI and a possible increase in infarct size from giving oxygen to everybody. And then the morphine, though it's extremely painful and um, the morphine would be used to relieve the pain, it can slow the absorption of oral antiplatelet agents because of decreased gastric motility, um, which would obviously increase the risk for, um, I guess, more of a more of an infarct. You're trying to get them that antiplatelet in there as quickly as possible so that could decrease the uh, absorption of that. So bye-bye morphine. Bye-bye morphine. All right. So that's the, you know, we'll kind of break it apart, but from STEMI and, and the NSTEMI and unstable angina, um, those are going to be treated on one side and then STEMI is kind of on its own thing. So starting with that, we've already talked about some of the supportive care. Now, the next kind of step is to um, figure out when we can kind of initiate reperfusion therapy. So ideally, we want to do a primary PCI, um, which is going to be the preferred um, method of kind of treating the patient and making sure that um, they can kind of clear that blockage, put the stent in. Um, this ideally needs to be done within um, 90 minutes of door to, bal to balloon. Um, and if, if as long as it can be done in that time frame, and uh, you're in a facility obviously that has the capabilities of doing something like that, um, then that would be the ideal situation. If not, if it's been longer than that, um, we kind of have to forego the PCI and we have to consider um, fibrinolysis um, as a treatment option uh, in that case. Um, while the patient is kind of, you know, getting 
sent to the cath lab. Um, we need to kind of also be thinking about some of our um, loading dose uh, medications that we're going to put on board. So, for example, um, I- initiating our antiplatelets. We've already given aspirin, but we also want to do one of our um, P- P2- P2Y12 inhibitors. So, clopidogrel, prasugrel, ticagrelor. Um, those, those, you know, three agents, and we'll go through some caveats that wouldn't, would make you pick one over the other. But, um, if it's primary PCI, we're going to try to do a loading dose, um, of those agents. Uh, and then if it's a fibrinolytic agent, we're going to do clopidogrel specifically, um, just because it's got the lower bleed risk and, um, you know, we're going to get that a loading dose. Now, one question that kept coming up is, you know, it, where do these actually kind of get started as far as the time timeline and are you getting it? during the PCI or before, right after, basically the, the, you want to get them to cath lab as quick as possible. And if, you know, you can get them the loading dose of the, uh, Prasugrel or Ticagrelor or whatever you're going to give them, uh, ahead of time. Great. And, you know, you may give that to them as they start the, um, process of, you know, doing the PCI, um, maybe right, you know, whatever you can kind of squeeze it in. We want to make sure we get it done, but we also don't want to like Oh, hold up. Let's not take them. Yeah, let's wait till the uh, right. pharmacy brings up the clopidogrel. Yeah. Let's so get, that, get that rolling. Got this pharmacist walking real yeah, slow real down slow. the hand of that Plus, he's got this, like, ankle injury that's been <laughs> bothering limping. him. So he's, like, taking his time. He had to stop for coffee. He's got crutches. <clears throat> they send that guy in the middle of an emergency. He gets stopped by a patient on the way. What if somebody's listening? He's like, that fits his crutch. <laughs> he's like, wait a minute. That's me. Patients start saying they've, wait, they've been waiting for 30 minutes on their medicine. He's yeah. like, this is an inpatient hospital. What are you talking about? You're having a STEMI. Shut up. <laughs> okay. Immediately off topic. Um, so PCI is ideal. Um, now, if we have to go with one of the furbernolytics, um, you know, we, uh, most of you have heard of like TPA, um, Ultiplase. That's going to be one of the ones that's probably the most commonly seen. Um, we also have like uh, uh, Place or RPA. Um, and you know, these are, there's, there's a lot of kind of, I guess, debate around these agents cause they do potentially increase the risk of bleed. And there's some evidence that says they may not be all that effective at improving outcomes and yada, yada, yada. Um, but if the patient can undergo a primary PCI, according to the guidelines, these are at least something that, you know, it should be considered to see if, you know, the patient's a candidate for being on TPA. Um, and this is specifically with a STEMI. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so there are some certain like contraindications to having that fibrinolytic therapy or TPA. You know, if the patient is is having a, an internal, an active internal bleed, you know, not including menses, but some sort of other bleed, um, that would be a contraindication because it's going to increase the bleed risk that much more. Um, if they have any sort of intracranial hemorrhage or neoplasm, also a contraindication. If there's any kind of like cerebral vascular lesion, um, any sort of uh, aortic dissection that's suspected, uh, facial or head trauma within the last three months. Uh, intracranial or intraspinal surgery within the last two months, um, or if they've had like severe uncontrolled hypertension, then we also want to hold off on fibrinolytic therapy. Yep. And we mentioned this is specifically for the STEMI and that ST segment elevation automatically makes this higher risk. And that's why we are doing early PCI. Whereas with the non-ST, which we'll talk about, you can stratify based on kind of how significant you think it is. So that's fibrinolytics. Um, so other things are the P2Y12 inhibitors um, with a primary PCI giving that loading dose. So we'll kind of go through those. Um, and then there's also uh, aspirin as well. So aspirin should be administered within 24 hours before or after um, hospital arrival to all patients who don't have a contraindication to aspirin. 
Um, and we know that aspirin acts by inhibiting um, thromboxane A2 through ir- irreversible inhibition of the platelet cyclooxygenase 1 um, and is an antiplatelet. Um, in patients who have a PCI, aspirin prevents acute thrombotic occlusion during the procedure. So you want to have them have it before, of course. Um, we talked about the dosing. Um, just make sure it's non-enteric coated. So if you have somebody who's concerned for that and they want to carry it around, non-enteric coated aspirin. Um, but the P2Y12s, so Mike mentioned we have Plavix, um, Clopidogrel, Prasugrel, and Ticagrelor. Um, the Prasugrel and Ticagrelor are a little bit more um, potent, so they have kind of lower doses. Um, uh, the Clopidogrel loading dose is much higher than you would see a regular Clopidogrel dose, 300 to 600 milligrams, whereas usually if you see a daily Clopidogrel dose, it's 75 milligrams a day. Um, and then with the other two, you're going to have a large loading dose and then a lower um daily maintenance dose. Chicagrelor of note is a twice daily dosing. Um, but they bind to P2Y12 receptors on platelets. And they prevent the binding um, of ADP to the receptor, reducing platelet activation and aggregate aggregation. Um, and like I said, the uh, clopidogrel is the least potent of them as far as the dosing goes. As far as um, comparing the three, prasugrel and Ticagrelor, both superior to clopidogrel in STEMI. Um, but they have a bit of a higher bleed risk, which we'll talk about. Um, the duration of how long you're going to keep them on this is usually at least 12 months. Um, don't use Prasugrel in a patient who has a history of a TIA or stroke. Don't use Ticagrelor if the patient has a history of intracranial hemorrhage, um, and that goes towards their, their bleed risk. Also, with Ticagrelor and aspirin, there's a bit of an interaction, or at least there's a, a limitation in dosing. Um, so don't use Ticagrelor if aspirin needs to be dosed more than 81 milligrams, more than that, um, that baby quote-unquote aspirin dose. Um, stop Ticagrelor and Clopidogrel for five days before a cabbage, um, but if it's emergent, Clopidogrel can be stopped for just 24 hours before the cabbage if it, if it needs to be. With Prasugrel, you want to stop that seven days before they have a cabbage, which of course is a coronary artery bypass graft uh, procedure. And that, that data you were mentioning about the Ticagrelor and aspirin, um, I think that, that comes directly from the um, PLATO trial, where they saw the benefit of Ticagrelor over Clopidogrel. However, when the aspirin dose went above 100 milligrams a day, you kind of lost out on the benefit because the bleed risk went up um, severely. Yep. So um, some ways of kind of differentiating between them. So we know that they are more, Prasugrel and Ticagrelor are more potent than our classic um, Clopidogrel. So some kind of patient populations that kind of keep an eye out for that really would benefit from being on one of those newer agents um, would be things that are patients who have like other comorbidities that could put them at higher risk. So things like uncontrolled diabetes, um, you know, that would be a classic example of somebody who um, that patient population does a little bit better um, when uh, being on Prestigrel or Ticagrelor based on the studies compared to Clopidogrel. Um, However, if you know, you're worried about um, the patients uh, needing a cabbage, um, then, you know, we, we may, we definitely want to probably stay away from Prezagrel because of the uh, 
the time we have to stop, um, clopidogrel may be a little bit uh, better option. Um, now, if it's a non-urgent cabbage, then that's you know, ticagalor is still a fine option. Um, the other thing is if a patient's weight is less than 60 kilograms or if they are above the, or excuse me, 75 years of age or older or they have a history of TIA or stroke, um, we want to make sure that we avoid prasugrel. Um, and if the patient is considered to be kind of a higher bleed risk, clopidogrel is going to be our guy. So it might not be as potent as far as preventing Secondary events, mm-hmm. you know, in worsening uh, or preventing outcome, negative outcomes. However, we also have a little bit better bleed profile, uh, bleed risk profile. So, it to kind of weigh those two, risk versus reward. There. Yep. So um, there are a couple of other classes of medications that can be used. Um, there are, and it, these are periprocedural. Um, if let's say it's a primary PCI is being performed. No P2Y12 inhibitor was given prior to PCI and bivalrudin, bival is not used. Um, then you could consider a GP2B3A inhibitor. There's three of those. Um, if you give that, it needs to be given with um, another type of anticoagulation, specifically heparin. Mm-hmm. Um, so the three are abcixamab, there's a monoclonal antibody. Uh, there's also integralin and agrostat. And these inhibit the binding of fibrinogen to activated GP2B3A receptors, which is the last step in platelet aggregation. So that's how they have their kind of antiplatelet effect. Um, they can greatly increase uh, bleed risk, and they can also cause thrombocytopenia. And they need to be administered uh, with heparin, like I said. They might provide some benefit in a patient with a STEMI who hasn't been preloaded with a, with a P2Y12 um, and like I said, not being treated with bival, and that's pretty much the only time that you would consider using one of those. Yeah, these I think they increase the bleed risk so much that these are oftentimes frowned upon. Yep. So from an anticoagulation standpoint, uh, a lot of times you know we may start off with a dose of unfractionated heparin. Um, which if you remember, heparin is working by or causing the anticoagulation effects by binding to antithrombin, um, which is going to uh, inactivate thrombin and factor um, 10A, which is going to then prevent that conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. Um, so this is kind of like a initial prophylaxis anticoagulation dose, if you will. Um, and uh, it's given typically sub-Q or IV. Um, we don't give it IM um, due to the risk of a hematoma. Um, now, the thing to kind of watch for in patients that are receiving heparin um, is the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. Um, so platelet factor 4 is released to kind of signal other platelets. Um, it's one of the steps in the process of aggregation. Uh, uh, Platelet factor four does have a high affinity for heparin, and so some individuals will end up kind of developing these antibodies to that um, platelet factor four heparin complex that forms. And so any platelet that contains this complex will then kind of be targeted for destruction by the person's own um, macrophages, and uh, you know the this risk of a patient actually having this or experiencing this can be um, kind of estimated uh, based on the what they call the four T's score. Um, and, you know, it's something that if the patient's had a history of this um, or, you know, the their four T's so that there might be at risk, then we will typically just go right to bivalrudin um, and go from there. We also have low molecular weight heparin, um, so anoxaparin is the usually the one we go with. Um, it's contraindicated in patients that have a history of HIT or have an active bleed. Um, and then, you know, we typically will renal dose adjust um, as the creatinine clearance 
continues to go lower. Um, and you know, but again, kind of starting off, they may get a dose of heparin. Um, once they get to the actual cath lab, a lot of times they'll end up getting switched over to bivalrudin anyway. And you know, the main purpose of that is indicated for patients um, with acute coronary syndrome that are undergoing PCI um, and that again are at risk for hit specifically. But um, a lot of times, I think don't quote me on this, but I want to say that MUSC tends to go with bivalrudin, especially in the the cath lab itself. Um, now it was always considered to be a little bit more effective. Um, however, there have been some relatively new studies over the last couple of years that, um, suggest that maybe bivalrudin actually doesn't really offer, um, like additional or further efficacy or safety, mm -hmm. um, over unfractionated heparin alone. Um, one study in particular that was done in uh, STEMI patient or patients experiencing STEMI that were undergoing primary PCI was called the HEAT PPCI trial and showed that there wasn't really as much of a benefit. So it's kind of been one of those things that for a while we thought Bivalrudin much more effective. Maybe not, though. So, wah, wah. Interesting. Yeah. So just to recap, STEMI, like we said, ST, segment elevation, acute coronary syndrome. Um, you got a couple of steps if you're kind of thinking of it stepwise. First, we used to do Mona B. We're not really doing Mona B anymore. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say ban dash O cause we sometimes do O. Um, but, uh, you want aspirin on board and nitroglycerin, right? Oxygen only if their O2 stat is less than 90%. And then, um, if there's no contraindications, you can go ahead and get them on a beta blocker, um, to decrease that, um, um, oxygen demand in cardiac remodeling long-term, um, and then a statin as well. Um, that'd be kind of like your, your first steps statin and beta blocker might could wait a little bit, but the rest of those drugs, first steps. Um, next we want them on antiplatelet therapies and anticoag. Um, so aspirin plus a P2Y12, um, maybe the GP2B3As, but probably not. Um, and then anticoagulation. And then after that, or maybe at the same time, basically, um, we want to initiate quick reperfusion therapy. So primary PCI, or fibrinolysis, um, you always do that for a STEMI. Then once that's done, we go into the last step, which is of course secondary prevention, long-term dual antiplatelet therapy, get them on the correct meds, beta blocker, ACE, whatever they need, um, and prevent uh, the STEMI from happening again. And, you know, if they've had a PCI, so they've had, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether they've had bare metal stents or drug-eluting stent, which is what they probably would, would have placed, um, or if they've even if they've had a cabbage um, or they've gotten fibrinolytic therapy, um, basically they're they're going to be getting 12 months of anti, or excuse me, um, 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, and then at that point, you would kind of reassess to see if the patient still needs um, to continue on with that dual antiplatelet therapy or assessing the bleed risk and kind of going from there. But um, it is genuinely considered to be about 12 months if it's been uh, an acute coronary syndrome, regardless whether it's STEMI or NSTEMI. Um, but that's uh, one thing that, um, you know, kind of get the patient planning on is that 12 months of that. Um, one thing I will say that, and this happens, you know, ho you know hopefully uh, you don't have to run into a situation that can make this kind of, this throws a wrench in here into the situation like this, but if you may have a patient who, let's say, has AFib and their CHADS VASC score would indicate that they need to be on anticoagulation. And then, you know, they also have uh, a P primary PCI done and now they need dual antiplatelet. So now the question becomes, okay, so we have to, are we doing anticoagulation plus two different antiplatelets? Um, there's some, a little bit of debate around that. Um, some uh, clinicians will say to go ahead and do kind of 
all three agents at once and just really monitor for signs of bleeding. Um, however, there, and, and this is particularly in, in uh, non-ST um, uh, situations where the, and this was the European guidelines from 2020, um, they did um, make an update where they said that um, long-term, if the patient needs long-term anticoagulation, one, they prefer to use one of the NOACs or, or DOACs, however you want to per se that i don't really like the uh novel because they're not really novel with them around for no a yeah so i guess doax direct at, doac yeah. will be the long term direct name, oral right? yeah. i think they were new like a, a while long time a minute ago. ago been a long minute yeah but um they want you to use one of the uh, doacs and then they want to do the dual antiplatelet so the aspirin plus whatever antiplatelet you're using for one week and then you would switch to dual treatment with clopidogrel is the one they mentioned plus a uh, doac for up to one year so that's their way of kind of handling that. They did address that in their most recent guideline kind of update. Um, so just kind of throwing that out there. Uh, I'm, I haven't done a deep enough dive in there to, to say whether or not I truly agree with that, but I, who am I to argue with the European <laughs> cardiology folks? Um, they're much more than I am, so I'll take their word for it for now. Um, but the, you have to let us know what you guys think about it. But, um, yeah. So looking at the other side of the puzzle now, and this is if the patient uh, does not have that ST segment elevation ACS. Um, and so this can, again, kind of be um, unstable angina or NSTEMI. But uh, at this point, you're kind of using one of those um, risk stratifying uh, calculators to see kind of where they fall. So like the GRACE calculator, the, t- the TIMI that's designed for the uh, non-ST segment elevation ACS. Um, and then this is going to show whether or not the patient's either at low risk or um, an intermediate or high risk. Uh, if they are low risk, we're going to do something called ischemia-driven approach. If they are an intermediate to high, we're going to do an early invasive approach. And that kind of is where the path deviates. Mm-hmm. So the low risk, we're going to consider starting um, a, a P2Y12 inhibitor, so clopidogrel, ticagalor. Um, we also want to probably in, initiate anticoagulation. You know, we can do unfractionated heparin, um, low molecular heparin. Um, and then from there, we're going to do a non-invasive stress test to kind of see how the patient responds. If, if they have a positive response to the in non-invasive stress test, heading off to do uh, either coronary angiography or PCI. Um, if negative, then we're going to assess based on the troponin levels. If the troponin levels are normal, we're going to figure out you know, with the origin of symptoms based on like non-cardiac uh, reasons, um, if the troponin levels are increased, um, we are thinking NSTEMI. And then if they're um, normal uh, troponin levels, uh, again, then they've um, probably more of an uh, unstable angina is another potential that it could be. Right. So if there's no difference in the, the ST segment elevation, then the only thing delineating unstable angina from an NSTEMI is the troponin levels, levels, which just means that yep. they had cardiac death and there's probably an occlusion versus um, unstable angina might just be there's kind of an ongoing situation or even if it was a little more acute um, of ischemia, but you didn't actually have death of cardiac muscle yep. cells. Yep. So if you are going to go with an early invasive approach, so the guidelines, the American guidelines have kind of gone and said that we kind of want to initiate the antiplatelet, um, especially if the troponin levels are elevated then, um, or there's uh, ischemic changes on an EKG, then they recommend prasugrel or ticagrelor. Um, if the troponin levels are normal and there's no ischemia changes in the EKG, then you can use um, either of those agents or clopidogrel as well. 
Um, but then we want to do the in initiation of anticoagulation and then allow the patient to uh, have either the coronary angiography or the PCI done. You kind of just continue that path like you, like you did before. But um, basically, the, the early invasive approach is where you're kind of skipping over that non-invasive stress test piece. Yep. And you're kind of rushing them through to get the, uh, the procedure done. So really the only, I mean, the main difference is if the patient is at low risk, then we're not necessarily going straight to the cath lab. We're saying, hey, maybe we can give them antiplatelets, anticoag, and um, kind of help the body break down this, whatever this occlusion is, and then we're going to get reperfusion at some point uh, soon. Uh, and then they test that with a stress test, and then we can kind of see how much cardiac death or whether they're having cardiac death to see kind of where to go from there. Um, otherwise, you just follow that STEMI kind of guideline that we talked about. Yep, yep. Not as crazy as you think. No. You, know, you hear ACS, you see all these STEMI and STEMI stuff, you're like, man, that looks complicated. There's so many words. Not too bad. No. Probably stressful when it's happening. <laughs> I, a little more stressful than when we're going through it, uh, you know, in a podcast. Nonchalantly in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be way more stressful. People screaming. Mm, yeah. Um, one thing that the European guidelines did mention, though, is that if you have a patient um, who is do doing the early invasive management strategy um, for a patient with non-ST segment elevation uh, ACS, they they say that the tr the pretreatment with a P two uh, excuse me P two Y twelve receptor inhibitor is no longer recommended by them. Um, and then they go further and say that dual antiplatelet therapy should be individualized based on bleeding versus ischemic risk. Um, so those are some kind of highlights from their uh, their new uh, guideline update. Um, but I'm curious to see how the, the pre-treatment with the antiplatelet kind of, if it stays the same here, if we're going to change that as well. Um, we'll have right. to do more of a deep dive and see what the, get a pulse on the, uh, the current realm, you know, the current field right now. See yep. how the cardiology folks are doing it. Right. We're I'll super in tune with that. I'll forgive the pun. Um, yeah, and you know, we throw around the PCI stuff so so nonchalantly, but I want to mention just how amazing these procedures are. But um, of course, if you're having a stent place, they literally go up in there, expand this little piece of mesh into the um, artery, keep it open, and then it just stays there, keeping your artery open, hopefully forever. Um, a cabbage, which is pretty insane, cardiac, car the bypass graph. They're literally, they're like, okay, that, that blood vessel or whatever is occluded. We're not getting blood flow through that. So we're just going to bypass that with a separate healthy blood vessel, vessel and graft it so that we can get blood flow through there. And we're just going to leave that one occluded and not working anymore. Crazy. 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 It's when I realize how stupid I am compared to those people. I know. So Whoever invented that. But at the same time, it's... It, at the same time, it sounds like something I would come up with like, oh, the <laughs> blood vessel's blocked? Let's uh, just... Just put this piece of string on it. Just go around it. Yeah, let's just, you know. See, I got this blood vessel I got over here. Let's so, just put it in there. Simple solution in theory, but <laughs> amazingly complicated to, to I've never do. looked at a patient's uh, blood vessels and been like, I should take some of those out. Yeah. Relocate them over here. Move those around. Yeah. I'd be like, this, I would have heard that idea and been like, there's no way that's going to work. <laughs> can't take blood vessels out of your leg. Imagine the first time it worked. Oh, my gosh. That guy's like, I told you. Told you it would work. Told you it would work, bro. That's how he talks. I imagine <laughs> whoever that guy is. Yeah, whoever that guy is. So um, the kind of timeline. Um, obviously, we kind of went through the initial within that first twenty four hours. The patient's in the hospital now. 
prior to discharge, there's some things we kind of want to check off you know, if we haven't done that already. We want to make sure that they're leaving on dual antiplatelet therapy, um, that they are you know, on appropriate statin therapy if they haven't already initiated the statin. Um, same with the beta blocker. Um, we also want to consider an ACE inhibitor um, or an ARB, um, especially if the patient has a left uh, ventricular ejection fraction less than 40%, uh, percent, um, or if there's a, it's an anterior MI, and uh, we want to do the ACE inhibitor for at least three months. Um, and then uh, we could consider um, sublingual nitroglycerin if they do have some kind of like leftover angina, and we want to make sure we discontinue any like NSAIDs or anything like that, that the patient might be taking at home. Um, and then have the patient follow up in about a month. Um, again, kind of an, uh, emphasize adherence at that point. Make sure the patient's on all the same meds um, and uh, continue to take them. And then now they do have a documented case of ASCVD. So um, if thinking back to our lipid um, discussion that we had a couple episodes ago, um, their LDL goal is going to be at least less than seven. Or excuse me, seven. Yeah, it's a really low, <laughs> really low LDL. We could goal. get there with some PCSK nines. Right? <laughs> there you go. Less than seventy. Excuse me. Um, and so if there aren't a, a statin already and their LDL is still above seventy, then we may want to consider zetamib and then potentially even a PCSK nine inhibitor after that. Check out our our lipid um, episode if you're curious about more of that. Yeah. Shameless plug for our other episode. <laughs> no big deal. And then 12-month follow-up, that's when we're kind of reevaluating whether they really need to be on dual antiplatelet, mm-hmm. um, continuing it past that one year, and uh, evaluating whether we're going to continue the beta blocker therapy beyond that one to three years, kind of come up with a game plan for there, um, most likely continuing it if they have uh, some reduced ejection fraction um, or angina symptoms, because that's going to help control that, that as well. Yeah. But yeah, so 24 hours prior to discharge, one-month follow-up. You'll probably follow up again before that, but at least at 12 months, you need to be making sure you're reevaluating the dual antiplatelet. Right. A couple other notes about the the stenting. There are two types. I think Mike referenced them, uh, but there's the bare metal stent and the drug-eluting stent. A little bit of controversy around the different ones. Um, it's not always guaranteed as to which one you're going to go to if you go and get one, as to which one you're going to get if you go into a cath lab. Um, but uh, compared to bare metal stents, drug-eluting stents do reduce the rate of smooth muscle cell growth and thus stent restenosis because this is a an exogenous um, um, thing that you're putting into your artery. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be like a natural artery, so it might occlude, it might attract um, plaque, and it can be dangerous long-term. So they try to, to reduce that risk and also the reason we use dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, drug-eluting stents cause a delay in endothelial cell regrowth at the side of the stent that places the patient at a higher risk of long-term thrombotic events, particularly stent thrombosis. So, um, yeah, that, that's why we, we do that with the stents and why we want to um, use antiplatelet therapy. It'd be pretty cool if, like, before you have the procedure done, probably not cool at that point for the person, but hypothetically, if you weren't miserable and in a bunch of pain, it'd be cool if, like, you could, like, pick out your, your stent Kind of like get like different designs. Like if it was painted or something. Right. Like have a core consult uh, logo on it. Now you're thinking. That's advertising. (laughs) I don't know that there's a better way to advertise. Well, actually. We'd probably only advertise to like medical examiners (laughs) when they found it on autopsy. That's probably like, what is this thing? And only if the person was murdered. Because otherwise they're not getting an autopsy. Yeah. So um, we'll put that, we'll we'll table that idea for now, but we'll (laughs) we'll come back to it. Maybe, Maybe there's something there. Maybe they're... Core console, all right. It's a very morbid advertising idea. (laughs) 
no one's going to see it except the but team then putting it's, it in. Then it's going to be like those hernia meshes, you know, they're going to cause all sorts of problems. And then it's going to be like 1-800-bad-stint. And it's going to be like, if you got a core console RX stint in the last six years and God. you and you had a heart attack. <laughs> we lose everything. You get sued and we lose you everything. You might get millions of dollars. <laughs> We're homeless. Then we have to rise again like phoenixes and build the podcast back up. <laughs> Sounds actually kind of fun. Yeah. Right, Cole? Hopefully we change the name, but probably not, right? And, and Jen are not going to be thrilled. Yeah, not gonna be thrilled. <laughs> hey, we have good news and not so good Listen, news. we have this great marketing idea. <laughs> it could completely go <laughs> downhill quick, though. Oh, terrible. Geez. All right, y'all. Well, I hope that was somewhat of a beneficial kind of overview. Um, and uh, if you have any questions, obviously we'll have our uh, emails in the show notes. And uh, if you have any comments or anything or think something we missed, make sure you um, reach out to us and give us your, your thoughts there. Um, you can also reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, if you want to shoot us a text to ask us clinical questions or comments or whatever through that, you can text 415-943-6116. Um, also thank you guys so much for those of you who have uh, subscribed on Patreon. I hope you all are liking the lectures. Um, really appreciate the support and it's definitely helping us, uh, to grow the podcast. Wait till you see all the cool, crazy camera angles and all the fancy stuff we're about to roll out There's here. Some cool this stuff month. coming. Yeah. Pretty excited. So that's thanks to you guys. Really appreciate the support and, uh, we will catch you guys next time. Have a great one.